system will be mine! <laughs> so long, you trusted me! <laughs> nah, I used you. What? Uh, I've been using your power cell to send a distress signal. You were too busy scheming to notice. You've been boimed. But, but no! You plugged me into the navigation console! I control this ship! <laughs> Buddy, we're not even near the nav console. All you control is the dimmer switch. But I... I... Transfer complete. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, skipping foreplay. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, the seventh episode of Season 2, Where Pleasant Fountains Lie. Um, Billup's mother shows up, tries to trick him into having sex, and then Boiler and Mariner crash land on a planet with a super evil computer played by one Jeffrey Combs. Cam, I think storytelling-wise, this kind of addressed all the issues that we were talking about last week with regards to kind of that very fragmented story, that manic, we don't know who exactly is where any given moment because there's like four or five different little storylines going on. I think narratively, this might be my favorite episode of season two, even if um, maybe not as many laughs, but a, a couple uh, big laughs uh, for me on this one. What's your uh, your initial take? I actually had pretty much the same take. I think we can argue back and forth about what's the funniest episode of the season. But in terms of storytelling, this one, everything we talked about last week was just dealt with here. And I liked that it was kind of an A story, B story, and they tied Tendi ultimately into the Billups and Rutherford story. It didn't feel like we were firing off in four separate directions in the same time and getting chaotic and having characters just hop around all over the place in a frantic way. This was... Full stories told straight through in 22 minutes, well-balanced. I just, I I think uh, comedically this episode wasn't maybe as strong for me as we'll always have Tom Paris, but in terms of storytelling, it's pretty near, it's probably the best of season two. Yeah, I just wonder if, like, they've been jamming, all, like, what, like four storylines per episode leading up to this, and they're like, huh. Maybe we've lo- like left all of our stuff uh, out there, and uh, what are we gonna do now? And so they just went, you know, with two straight storylines. The other thing I have to remark on, like, there's that one act that took place on the planet, and I had almost forgotten about the uh, the other story arc with uh, Billups because we hadn't visited him so long. Like, it just felt like more confident storytelling than they could spend an extended period of time with two characters, two main characters. And just let us kind of be with them before you have to jump right back and forth between different things. Like there, like there's a scene on the planet. Then let's go on a scene from the exterior of the shuttle. Let's see what it's like to, you know, eat um, fruit that tastes like black licorice. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know. So I, I just I just felt this way more confident storytelling. Uh, we saw that going on in the last half of season one as well. I, I, I'm hoping that maybe the final three episodes of the season kind of keep this uh, momentum up here. I have found it fascinating, though, just to look at IMDb scores for this season, where, like, every episode scores almost the same, with the exception of the premiere, which was a little lower, which isn't a surprise. It just shows you that, like, 
it seems this is a very consistent season in the eyes of viewers. Like, there's no highs and lows. It's all kind of landing in a pretty similar straight line. Yeah, and look, I, which, like, I, I don't want to, like, kind of, like, uh, knock the producers, the writers, too much, but it, it tells us, you know, that uh, IMDb users at least think that there's a consistency going on here. And I, I feel it as if it's been a pretty consistent aside for, uh, consistent season, aside from that premiere. But, uh, yeah, this one is just, like, um, I don't know. It, it just was delightful. And uh, there, there's stuff. We got some uh, Loxana Troy vibes going on. It, it was very clear that <laughs> this is not the first time that uh, one Queen Palana has visited the ship. You know, Freeman made it uh, very clear, like, oh, yeah. She's here again, you know, like that sort of stuff. And um, I, I, I never really pieced it together that, um, you know, Billups might actually be an alien and he had to take on a different name. He didn't want to be recognized <laughs> as Prince Atherithio. Is that it? Um, sure. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Maybe he's pulling like a Cleveland Booker, an alien who somehow takes on the names of humans for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this one had, yeah, as you said, Loxana uh, vibes, but... This is also the second instant of a um, acting couple, a living, you know, married couple playing a parent and child relationship where we had Paul Shear and June Diane Raphael um, playing <laughs> Billups and Queen Billups. So I thought that was uh, pretty funny as well. Well, I, are you referencing uh, Discovery Season uh, 2? Yeah, yeah, with uh, Burnham, yeah. Yeah, so for those that don't know that uh, uh, actress uh, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green the actor who played her father in those flashback sequences, uh, that's her real-life husband. So that's kind of like a, a funny co uh, connection that we're seeing between those two series. Yeah. Is that the Kurtzman thing now? Is that is that what their uh, addition to the Star Trek canon will ultimately be? <laughs> well, Star Trek's always been obsessed with uh, mommy issues and daddy issues. So I guess this uh, just yeah, one more thing to for us to think about, which... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like this episode, in terms of like the Loxana story, it felt, a way, it, that's something like I felt TNG kind of struggled with with those Loxana episodes. Like we did an episode, Mother's Gone Amok, where we went through them and there were some decent ones, but by and large, they weren't great. This one actually, I thought, worked really well in introducing us to this <laughs> fantasy-based sci-fi society. And uh, it just had a lot of fun with the world building. It didn't so much hinge on an obnoxious character just getting on everyone's nerves. Well, I think that the only other series that could have pulled this off would have been the original series. Like, go on some sort of back lot, mm -hmm. uh, back lot and try to do it there. I was just even thinking the... Uh... The, the ship design, you know, within the uh, Hyperion uh, ship, which looked beautiful, but walking into that, like, there's no other show that could have uh, kind of matched the production values that you're seeing here. And the animation costs the same, whether you're on the Cerritos or on this alien ship, and it just looked magnificent uh, seeing, seeing this uh, fairy tale sort of planet. I got TOS vibes as well. You think of an episode like Plato's Stepchildren or something like that, and it really made me want to see this in live action. Um, I don't know. Could the Pike show be that crazy? Could Strange New Worlds take us there? <laughs> uh, yes, an ancient Egypt planet. That's what I would go for with Strange New Worlds. <laughs> I'm okay going to this planet. I want to see it realized in live action. Well, are, would an ancient Egypt uh, planet actually be all that strange or all that new, though? Hmm. Maybe at that point in time. It would just be a planet. You could just call that episode Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> that can be a short trek, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. 
Yeah, so, but there's just even, like, funny moments, like, making reference to Dragon Breath engines, you know, like, I, I, I like that, but let's dig deeper into really what's going on here, in which, if Billups loses his virginity, he automatically becomes king of Hysperia, which he doesn't want to do, I, I, why can't he just decline? Uh, I guess that's not the way their society works. Maybe it's kind of like at the end of uh, Mandalorian Season 2, where there's, like, the spear that he doesn't want. Or, the, sorry, the Darksaber that he doesn't want. He just wants to give it away. And it's like, no, you're not allowed to hand it back. We have to fight for it to the death. It's it's all part of the culture, Tyler. Who are we to question it? Well, if I was Billups, uh, and if I'm Billups to the point where I'm changing my name and joining Starfleet, I, I could just say to my mom, like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to do this. But um, this is funny. We, we got, like, uh, you know, we've definitely seen this season's a lot more raunchy uh, than uh, we had maybe expected. Uh, and I've always been kind of calling for... Uh, uh, lower decks to be a little darker, uh, a little bit more cutting. So uh, with, with uh, Billups unable to um, perform, that's not something I, I would have thought we'd see in Star Trek. You know? <laughs> I don't know that I need to see that in live action Star Trek, but it was pretty funny here. <laughs> uh, yeah, what series do you think is most likely to have this in live action, Cam? Oh, my God. Um... It's certainly not going to be on Star Trek Prodigy. No. <laughs> um like does it have to be a new one or can we go backwards Any, like anyone just uh kind of in the spirit of the series but don't don't think about uh you know yeah. rating timelines like yeah okay like i could see this somehow tying into some sort of quark storyline okay yeah yeah uh, like maybe it's a brunt a brunt final moment of a uh you know ferengi episode of uh ds9 well, this is, I guess, also with regards to Billups, our first butt shot from a character since uh, those Nero pressure scenes back in Enterprise as well. So it's got that going for it. Yes, it does. It was a very, I mean, back in the day with Enterprise, they were like, we're making Star Trek sexy. But Lower Decks, they're the ones really making Star Trek sexy. <laughs> oh, man, don't tell that to the Discovery people who introduced us to uh, naked Klingons. Yeah, they were really proud of themselves. Yeah, as we said, um... It's just so weird when they were like, we're making essentially what is an R-rated Star Trek. This could be adult content. We can do things that no Star Trek show could have. And it's like, I don't know, we just have some gore every now and again. And uh, maybe once every three episodes, somebody will drop an F-bomb. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, sure. Mature storytelling, sure. I wonder if the most disturbing thing that uh, Discovery introduces is the, uh, the concept of uh, Klingons having uh, two penises. Um... That feels like a lingering moment that people will remember from Discovery. Like, I, uh, I don't know how history will look back on Discovery, but I think that's one of the contributions it made that people will remember. Because um, I don't know that there's things like spore drives and stuff, sure. But I think in terms of, like, minutia, Trek minutia that people like to dig into, that feels like one of the uh, one of the primary contributions so far. And I don't know that that's necessarily a tick mark in its favor just something i never ever contemplated but now it's stuck in my head and i i i don't know physiologically how that would even work but uh or even look like but um now it's stuck in my head thank you discovery <laughs> let's let's just see where they go from here i mean season four the sky's the limit <laughs> uh, Cam, i also think we need to have like a uh, like a kind of serious discussion about where we stand on black licorice uh What's your yeah. take for you know? I I think I know what your take is, but for listeners, 
I don't like black licorice, um, but I like black jujubes, so that's kind of the same flavor. So I guess in terms of the actual licorice, no, but in terms of that flavor, I, I guess I'm open to it depending on the type of candy. I would take uh, black licorice over red licorice any day, like absolutely like uh that's what i dig i i like the flavor so if there were, there were fruits on a desert planet that tasted like that that i'd be okay with that too it wouldn't be my choice but it wouldn't i wouldn't be shuddering like boimler and mariner were um i'm more of, i can't even say i'm a strawberry licorice uh, i'm not really maybe a licorice person just in general i like nibs um and i really like australian licorice theirs is really good um the strawberry licorice there is genuinely good but stuff like twizzlers and everything does nothing for me yeah well i look if it was the only thing that they had in the rations i think i could probably survive um look this storyline uh with uh uh, jeffrey combs it took me about halfway through the episode to actually place jeffrey combs's voice like Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time i thought it was like paul f tompkins or something like that uh, doing like this kind of animated uh, no pun intended sort of vocal work and i as soon as it clicked I was like, yes, this is genius. So you can kind of tell that uh, people like J.G. Hertzler, Jeffrey Combs, you know, fans within the writer's room just bringing them in. And it was just like he's such a perfect evil computer voice that I never even considered. Well, you and I did an episode on Jeffrey Combs and his contributions to Star Trek, as well as some of the other character actors that they brought back time and time again. And we've kind of had this countdown clock, I think, in our heads as to when Star Trek would bring Jeffrey Combs back. And I think maybe earlier on we were saying, hey, they've got Clint Howard on season one Discovery. How long till we get Jeffrey Combs popping up? I, I don't know what's in store for future Discovery or Picard seasons, but it was just really exciting to have him back here because I think he's such an invaluable presence because he's played multiple characters on Star Trek. None of them feel at all similar to one another. And as you said, this was a perfect casting choice for an evil computer. And a lot of the humor came out for me just of scenes of him trying to con Mariner and Boimler. And it, all, it frequently had less to do with the actual lines being funny so much as just his delivery and sort of the toady manner in which he would uh, portray that computer. Well, even the opening moments with uh, him and Ransom where he's just stroking <laughs> Ransom's ego and it worked almost like twice, you know, like I think Ransom that they're kind of getting a good grasp on what makes him funny and what makes him kind of annoying. And I think uh, this just kind of continued that path. But uh, even him making remarks, you know, to Mariner, like, yeah, you could lose a, a few pounds anyways, you know, like uh, like he just had kind of this delivery that worked. The one thing about that storyline that I was just kind of having in hind about is you know, Boimler goes paranoid on a desert planet. It's kind of like we, we've seen that storyline a few too many times. And when he kind of turned the tables, like, w- w- what do you think, though? Like, did he actually fall for um, uh, Agassiz's? <laughs> it's really hard to um, give him the possessive, but... Lord Agamus? Uh, so Agamus? Agamus's, I guess. Okay. Yeah. But... Uh, that said, uh, Lord Agamus's, uh plan, like, did, did he actually fall for it at any point, or did he just kind of turn the tables last minute once they actually got into that uh, alien ship that had crash-landed? That is an excellent question that I was wondering both times I watched the episode. So it's, I think, left a little ambiguous, because uh, Mariner seems to have screwed Boimler over to get him sent on that mission, which... Uh, I think he has every right to be very angry about, and if that is the case, maybe we can have a side conversation afterwards about just, uh, I don't know, that's not a great friend, but um, 
I was under the impression that he was giving into paranoia, and it was reminding me a bit of that Simpsons episode with Mr. Burns and Homer stuck in the cabin that snowed in. Um, but uh, I was under the impression that he had kind of flipped his lid a bit, but still had the presence of mind to realize that this computer um, was going to do nothing good for him, and so he had to use the computer. I, I still think the... I still feel like the Boimler Mariner stuff was a little genuine there. Yeah, I, I, I like that they, the whole Titan thing hasn't been dropped. I, I like it just because it's kind of annoying uh, a trait for Boimler to have. Like, I remember that time I was uh, doing rock climbing on the Titan. The thing I'll, I'll question you about, though, is like, um, did uh, Mariner actually kind of screw Boimler out of the mission the way that it was depicted by Agamus Ag- uh, on that screen? Like, I, I both times I watched it, I... I figured it was just kind of a uh, a forgery of what happened there, because if he's trapped in this box, there would not have been a way for him to necessarily, you know, scan what was going on between them. I just wonder if she ultimately admitted that she just doesn't think Boimler is ready for these sorts of missions. Not that uh, she actively sabotaged his efforts to get on the uh, the centipede, centipede planet. Yeah, and that was the thing. I I did as well question the veracity of the. Uh... You know the the video essentially that he sees um there's one thing i'm wondering though we have the bit where he reads uh or you know uh, uploads um mariner's pad and we never really get a payoff to that so i'm wondering if that's where he got that information that's what i was wondering okay yeah well you know that's the thing like i don't mind it if episodes are left a little ambiguous and you can kind of like uh, comb through what the characters' motivations might be without it being like beaten over their head. Um, because there was even a moment where like uh, I think Mariner's just like, "Oh yeah, you had to fire a phaser at me as part of your plan." And like, there's just a split second <laughs> look on his face, and it's an animated face, and he's just it was just like, "Oh yeah, uh, that, it was part of my plan." Like, but that's open to interpretation as well. So I just I, I kind of like it when they can add those layers within it. Yeah, so what do you think of Mariner going to Ransom, hypothetically, if that is the case, and getting Boimler taken off that mission? I think Boimler has every reason to be pissed off. Like, I think that's, like, not a cool thing to do. Um, her argument is like, well, I just want to make sure that you don't get into something um, too early and make a fool out of yourself, you know, before you're ready, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that that's not your decision to make. That That's Boimler to, uh, Boimler's actions to carry out and if he messes up, well, that's a learning experience on his end. Like, I totally thought that was uh, totally uncool if, in fact, that's what how it played out. Yeah, and if you say you're not ready, it's like, well, who are you to judge that? And if she has the line where she talks about his study abroad on the Titan, I thought that was actually a really funny kind of stealth line there that I thought, uh, you know, fitted the way that Mariner would see his, um, you know, time on the Titan. But it also shows that she doesn't have any respect for it whatsoever. Uh I, I like that they had this conflict between them. But yeah, I did have a little bit of that. Hmm, it's a little bit toxic if she's trying to determine his career path. And also, in some ways, makes it more interesting in that we know where Mariner is very content to spend her career, it seems, in Starfleet. And you begin to wonder, is she someone who might try to hold others, uh, Boimler specifically, back because she's content where she is and wants them to be with her? Yeah. Overall, like, I... We were questioning a few weeks ago, like, where does the relationship go from here? And I, I, I like how there is still kind of like this uh, closeness 
but there is this underlying not, not contempt but tension between them and I, I think their relationship works best if there is that ongoing tension and that um look, look they're both pretty weird characters i i think they oh, yeah. are unquestionably the two weirdest main characters that star trek's ever had and i like it when they butt heads because you know they they're both it's possible they're both wrong at times you know Hold up. Okay, who who is the um, other contenders for weirdest outside of those two and main characters? I think Neelix. I mean, Jordy's up there, right? Jordy, Neelix. Neelix. Uh, mm. Quark. Know. Is Quark weird, though? I always thought that he's, like, probably one of the most normal, in fact. he He's definitely the most human. Yeah. You know? He's very true to who he is, too. He doesn't feel like a character who can't fit in. Um, You feel like Neelix and Jordy stick out a little more than Quark does. I'm trying to think if there's a like is you know is flocks weird i wouldn't say so i think he um gets along with people too well when you look at um um neelix like you have episodes where he's really annoying people and you don't get that with you know many other many of the other characters um yeah i'm just like racking my brain right now to see if there's anyone that really pops out to me well maybe 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 um, Flox isn't, like, weird, but he's definitely, mm. like, quirky, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Worf on DS9 early on has some moments as well. But, yeah, okay. I think Neelix might be the best bet. Okay, know? yeah. Um, <laughs> I still think Boimler and Mariner are, they're, like, they're weird, not because of, like... Um, like these artificial quirks that uh, the writers put on them, they're, they're weird because they're, they're kind of messed up people, you know? Yes, there's a very dysfunctional element at their core, which is actually quite unusual in Star Trek where characters tend to be very functional and work very strongly in team environments. These two, um, I think Boimler's a more of a team player, but Mariner definitely has issues in that regard. Who do you think ultimately, you know, let's flash forward, you know, 10 15 years who do you think would make for a character that would have enough ability to learn from their mistakes and become a leader and become kind of a captain of their own ship at some point who'd be the better captain i should say i can't help but feel like it's mariner and i wonder if if we were to flash forward you know 20 years down the road if older Mariner would look back on these days as like her young rebellious days. Yeah. Who knows? Like I would love I would love a flashback episode about what was young Captain Freeman like. Was yeah. are there similarities there? Like did she have maybe a similar journey, not the same kind of lower decks life, but just that similar chip on her shoulder? You know, is there a uh, connection there family wise? I just think that could be really interesting. I-, I also like the idea of having a flash forward episode in which we see one Captain Boimler and Ensign Mariner is still there causing trouble in the lower decks. <laughs> that could also be a lot of fun. And that's something we could do in this animated show. I don't expect it in season two, but I'm hoping by the time we roll around I don't know, season four or something like that, we can start doing those wacky stories where we jump forward in time and get different angles on the characters. Um, that was something that, you know, the Simpsons did at a certain point. The Simpsons flashback episodes were always a lot of fun. So I hope the show does that at some point because there's no reason not to. My, my favorite line from uh, those flashback episodes is when um, that one woman walked up to Homer and was like, 
that that in high school and she's like homer simpson you're so cool and then he like combs his hair and then as he walks away you, you can hear her friends say oh cindy that's so mean and it's like I love now trying to place those flashback episodes of The Simpsons on a timeline so it makes sense. <laughs> well, like, at this point, like, would those Marge and Homer um, uh, flashback episodes now have to take place in the 1990s? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Because yeah, so. isn't Bart's, like, what is he, 11 or something? I think he's 9. Yeah, okay, so they're, yeah, uh, yeah. so they're, like, yeah, 90s. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think that um, Marge is younger than uh, you and I? I think Homer's younger than you and I now, or at least um, me. Um, you, I think yeah, Homer was I like so. thirty. Yeah, I think Homer's supposed to be like thirty-nine years old. So yeah, yeah so that's I, crushingly I, I, I'm depressing. Not, I'm not up there. Yeah, but it also never really made sense because if they're so far apart in years, how come they were sharing like flashback sequences in, in, in like high school or something, right? Yeah. Uh, is Marge like a year or two younger? Or no, I, I think she was supposed to be like four or five years younger. Like. Um, Okay. Based on like what had previously been established uh, before those flashback episodes. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. Anyway, I mean, at at this point, I'm just circling uh, Grandpa Simpson, so you know, uh, <laughs> I, I can tell. <laughs> uh, so one thing that um kind of made me roll my eyes is okay, we we see the explosion on the Hyperion ship. We find out that Billups's mother was in there. He has to become king. Um, that lasts all of seven seconds before we find out that Rutherford was supposedly in that explosion as well. So that pretty much told me that it was just a ploy by the Queen. I knew exactly what was going on. I I, I know what they're trying to do, trying to tie both storylines together. But it, it just, it kind of, if you can guess what's going to happen that quickly, that just makes me kind of like shrug my shoulders while I'm watching a show. Like, I, I check out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean, because I never for a second thought Rutherford had actually died. I did like the moment of ten, of um, Dr. Tana telling Tendi, though, because so often we get a very broad comedic take on Dr. Tana. I just liked seeing her in this moment, um, behaving more professional. <laughs> I thought that was kind of sure. fun. But um, yeah. I, to me, what made this a little more forgivable was that it was incredibly brief. Like they did not linger on it. We got yes. we didn't have like a extended funeral sequence or something like that. It was Tendi being upset and then going into problem solving mode and hopping over there to very quickly unravel this plot. So it didn't again. It it didn't linger, which to me made it you know not insufferable to endure. Okay. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. Um, did uh, the physique of Billups surprise you at all? No, because I feel like if I'm working on Lower Decks and they're like, okay, we want to have a like Billups sex scene or whatever, you are going to make him look really ripped because it's far funnier. Yeah, it kind of like in that uh, moment in Meet the Parents where Ben Siller's character just walks into the pool and he's just looking ripped. And like, I just, I remember seeing that in theaters and everyone was just kind of chuckling. But the thing is, is like, what was the joke? The joke was like this guy, he just looked really good in a bathing suit. And like, that's why everyone was chuckling. It's just, it, it's kind of playing with our expectations though, which uh, was kind of funny. Yeah, I always thought with uh, Meet the Parents, there was a little bit of a vanity thing going on there though, where I feel like Ben Stiller realized he had to wear a Speedo and was like, I'm going to look good doing this. Well, from what I understand, like he he's always like been in really good shape. And like, I think yeah. they just thought it'd be funny to kind of show that off because wasn't he like wearing a Speedo or something? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Or is that just my imagination? 
that scene was never actually in the movie. You're just entirely <laughs> fantasizing about an imaginary moment. And you're just going along with it like, sure, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, Ben Stiller in a bathing suit. It was a shared hallucination watching Meet the Parents. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I thought interesting, though, is like they had the royal guards that were going to go take uh, take his virginity. And they had like yeah. both a man and a woman. So they're kind of like um, leaving it ambiguous whether whatever Billups' sexuality would be. Or who knows what the Hyperion society is. Maybe um, they're all over the spectrum no matter who you are. So I just thought that was kind of a an interesting nod. Not necessarily something that we would have seen if this is a storyline that played out... Um, in a season two next generation episode involving Jordy. Well, or, you know, a better comparison is actually the Harry Kim episode where he goes to the planet of vampire women or whatever. And like that one was a, you know, obviously it's all women and Harry Kim. And I was actually wondering how they were, how they were going to play this scene with Billups because I, in the back of my head, I'm going, well, we've seen that like discovery um, is very open to different, you know, approaches to sexuality and how people are, you know, what orientation they follow. And I um, was thinking that they were actually going to play it more traditional here because I almost didn't give the storytellers enough credit that they would actually think that through. And I was actually pleasantly surprised that they did. Well, he did have that one line early on in the episode where he said, sorry, mother, the only lady I love is two decks tall and pumped full of dilithium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when we get to the planet, we have the like the dancing girl kind of coming on to him. We also have the guard making the comment to him. So I thought, oh, okay. And then, you know, yeah, the way the scene played out, I thought was a nice surprise. So maybe a couple, uh, you know, points that I want to make as we wrap up, because I do want to talk to you um, about the, the future uh, streaming service on uh, Paramount Plus. Yeah. Uh, you and I had a brief conversation uh, the other day off the show about this, but um, I just want to point out uh, some of my favorite lines here. Um, Rutherford saying Billups loves his virginity. Uh, we also <laughs> had, um, Rutherford makes it into his quarters, uh, to Billups's quarters, and he turns to the guards and he said, "Did his kingdom come?" I think that was an absolutely brilliant line. Uh, just line uh, of the episode. Line of the episode. Um, and then uh, he also had uh, on the planet um, Boimler telling uh, Agamus, you've been boimed. I think that should be his catchphrase moving forward. Not engage, not make it so you've been boimed. And uh, essentially telling uh, Agamus that you've become a dimmer switch. That was great. But uh, my highlight here was that, that final moment where it's kind of that uh, Raiders, of the, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, moment uh, nod where we see all of the evil computers stacked up in the Daystrom Institute. Um, too bad that uh, uh, Lore or uh, B4 did not get uh, little cameos in, in that moment. But uh, that did make me laugh. Oh, that would have been fun. That would have been really fun, actually. And I was regretting not memorizing what all of the evil computers from tos looked like to see if there was like I, i'm sure probably one or two of them was dropped into that scene but i couldn't pick them out um i, w I was a little disappointed they didn't have the vol you know snakehead in there were you disappointed that they didn't have uh leander from uh star trek discovery Leander. oh uh leander was that his name uh the section 31 turned uh ai in the flesh program I feel like his name wasn't Leander, but I also can't remember his name. But yes, I know exactly, yeah, the character you're talking about. Um, no, I'm sorry. Was it Leland? Yes, Leland. Thank you. There yes, you yes. Um, yeah, Leland, that would have been really good. It seemed like they wanted to stick to the traditional like box computer, kind of the HAL 9000 kind of look. 
Um, but it would have been fun to have some, as you said, lore would be great to see thrown in there as well. There's a few, um, you know, evil computer characters over the history of Star Trek that look a little different. Even like, you know, the space probe thing from the future yep. in um, Discovery as well. So, yeah. Well, it, it, well I, I point it out again, but it's great how Boimler was able to think his way out of the situation with the evil computer versus, you know, Giorgio who got into a um, martial arts contest with Leland before turning him into a pile of ground beef with a magnet inside of the cube on Discovery. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I like it when the characters use their smarts rather than their brute force. And uh, Lord Dax has been leaning more towards the smarts versus those like uh, action sequences that we saw a lot of uh, in the first half of season one. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not tracking back. Doesn't like every Discovery season end with like a fist fight? Because now I'm remembering Burnham like throwing, or who Burnham getting stuck inside a gelatinous computer or something like that with her fight with Osira. Yeah. Um, you had Cowboy getting thrown out of a you know turbo lift. Uh, yeah, uh, way to go, Discovery. Do you recall the season one finale, Cam, of Discovery? Yeah, nothing. It was like there. let's go plants um, or make some spores bloom on a planet, and then let's go visit Chronos uh, and. Um, put nuclear weapons throughout their lava um networks so that yeah. we could have an undemocratic takeover by um uh, laurel it was it was a bad finale that's uh, that's all i'm getting at you know a point now jumps into my mind did discovery learn a bad lesson from that because the finale to season one was not particularly well received uh, especially not over time and since then, we've seen these seasons always wrap up with these huge, like, action sequences. Like, did they learn the lesson of, oh, well, we should have ended with big action versus trying to do something Star Trekky? I guess? Uh, my big problem is, like, I, yeah, I I agree with you. They learned a bad lesson. And I, I think they also, it was a storytelling lesson that they did not learn from uh, the season one finale, which was, like, what are the stakes? Like, why do the stakes matter? Why are we watching? Why are we invested? All of a sudden, we're in the finale, and we're like, isn't this Klingon War supposedly going to wrap up any moment now? And they just made it wrap up through this deus ex machina that made no sense. It was profoundly disappointing. And, like, I, you look at a great finale like um, Best of Both Worlds Part 1, and how many action sequences are really in it? You know, it's, it's a lot of times to see Enterprise flying away. It's really the tension that's building throughout it and, and like I, I think you get so much more of a finale if there's tension whether it's character based or story based than just watching things explode all the time or going through these turbo lifts that have uh no connection to reality in terms of the geography within the ship <laughs> yeah i mean we never saw the battle of wolf 359 and i think also of the movie doctor strange where you build up to dormammu the big you know mystical being that could take over everything and what do we end with Doctor Strange having to outsmart the character and essentially die over and over again. And that was so clever and produced memes. People really enjoyed that whole sequence. That's the sort of thing I think Discovery would have been better to go for. You can go kind of big and kind of crazy, but it's got to deliver a moment people care about versus like Laurel being like, I got bombs in the planet. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Walk well, away. It, it, but it also kind of, if they're willing to do something... Uh, more character-driven than action-driven as a finale, I think that shows a lot of confidence. Like, just, okay, 
maybe best of both worlds part one wasn't the best uh, example uh, about confidence because I, I think you're gonna really build that if you assimilate Picard, have a Borg finale. That that's that that's a winner right there. But think about Redemption part one, where the essentially the climax of the episode is Worf walking through the quarters of the Enterprise as after he resigns, and it's people saluting him. And it's essentially him beaming away from the ship. That is confident storytelling right there. It's not an action sequence. I'm so much more invested in that. The implications for the characters. Journey, they're going there forward. Like, that's what I, I wish Discovery is paying attention to. Yeah, and, you know, best of both worlds part one. It's the moment that everyone, you know, continues to talk about and, you know, show images online and just obsess over is Picard showing up on the view screen as Locutus. It's not Locutus showing up on the Enterprise and beating the crap out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know, Which would have been to... amazing, actually. That, that Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would have had the same martial arts skills as Giorgio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like running in zero G, like on the ceiling and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like the Matrix. <laughs> Taking down Worf. That would be amazing. <laughs> well, that's pretty easy to do, as we've seen across True. the episode. I guess we should yeah, give just... one last, uh, last shout out to uh, TNG finales, just with regards to the uh, Data's head in a cave mm. that uh, we got reference to here. But yeah. I cut you off. Uh, I think you're about to say something about Worf. Oh, no, just it's a very sad statement on Worf that um, it would be perfectly in keeping for, you know, Patrick Stewart to come over and beat up Worf on screen. And we'd be like, yep, I buy this. <laughs> What's funny, we never saw like Odo really getting beaten up. It was just kind of... That was a Worf thing. Yeah, it really was. Um, I guess it's harder to show it with Odo because he's he would just turn into like gelatinous goo or something. But and that's expensive. <laughs> he did have like have half a season as a solid, you know, back in season five. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he didn't really get uh, his ass handed to him, you know. And I, I'm paraphrasing one uh, Jonathan Archer when I say that, uh, you know. But uh, okay, Cam, uh, any final thoughts before we jump over to the state of streaming and what it means for Star Trek? Um, no, just really enjoyable episode, and I, I think so. Uh, I think still my favorite is the Tom Paris episode slash the Tendi Mariner road trip episode. But this was a probably a very strong second place for me. Okay, well, cool. So uh, something that uh, we did not get a chance to talk about uh, last week was that uh, the head of Paramount's uh, CEO Jim uh, Giannopoulos, uh, he's essentially kind of been ousted. There's um, there, there there's a big push for Sherry Redstone, kind of the owner. Uh, she, she wants it to make wants it to be a much more viable property, so that Paramount could be sold. She kind of wants out of the company, but she knows that they're not going to get their money's worth with, without more of an emphasis on streaming. So, I I have been absolutely like baffled by the strategy ever since that CBS Viacom merger a couple years ago, because that essentially uh, you make those deals so that there is more investment being made in content. And I thought there was just going to be an even bigger explosion of uh, Star Trek content on the way. We got that with TV. Um, with mm-hmm. movies, though, it, it's been nothing since uh, 2016, which is just absolutely insane. Like, absolutely insane. So it, it sounds as if... Well, when you and I talked about it the other night, we were thinking, like... is. Is it just more like maybe like instead of like um, $200 million Star Trek movies going to theaters every five years, maybe we're looking at uh, a string of uh, 
30 to 50 million dollar star trek episode uh movies coming out once a year as kind of like um kind of big specials or something like that on paramount plus like i what's your take on what this might mean moving forward it makes me wonder if what we're going to get is something like a tarantino trek or just an oddball star trek script maybe they have is something they gear towards streaming and can really market the hell out of whereas essentially if there was another variation on a jj abrams star trek 2009 something that's very much geared as a blockbuster a4 quadrant film they would gear that star trek film more to the big screen but the streaming movies could really fill a void and be very flashy marketing tools for them and they could make them possibly more frequently than they would a 200 million dollar blockbuster well like remember when they're making like the um tos movies you know in like the late 80s they were just reusing the tng um sets all the time like why don't they just kind of like do that you reuse or, or redecorate the enterprise bridge or the discovery bridge and you can make movies that look like pretty decent on more of a shoestring budget you know i just think about like how good undiscovered country looks you know for example and they're they're reusing some uh, vfx the, you know they're they're reusing some familiar sets i get it but it, it's really the reason why the undiscovered country works so well is because of the script you know and like that's what i wonder is if um there's paramount has been trying to think too big like how do we blow it up to the max where i think you know these movies would be best as kind of one-off things like that are trying to tell smaller stories maybe different crews that we're not familiar with um smaller events going on like i, I think that would be something i'd be far more interested in as just kind of a, like a one-off special like once a year you know like maybe going forward we we know we'll always get like a uh a two-hour star trek movie around christmas time that might involve like some uh, weird little corner of the universe that we would never have otherwise expected. And maybe even something like we get a Worf movie or something like that. Like something that um, you can market in a way it's going to draw people into streaming, but you could never expect um, a significant number of people to show up in a theater for. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, like you can take gambles on streaming because people will watch it anyway. And it's something you can throw in your library and have forevermore. But I, I don't know. Do you think we could still have a world where we have these types of movies showing up on the network? But, you know, someone comes along, a power producer who says, I want to make a $200 million Star Trek movie for the summer. We still have the, you know, the, the world, hopefully in the future, you know, a more um, <laughs> profitable theatrical world to still offer those types of experiences, you know, those types of Star Trek experiences for fans as well. Yeah, and I think we are going to get one of those blockbusters, uh, what do they say, 2023 is when I think they've uh, marked like a specific date. Who even knows what that means in this era of uh, COVID, though. Yeah. But, um, uh, and, and then, but, but you, you brought up a good point, though, is what this is meant to do, though, is draw people towards a streaming service. And if there is kind of um, an opportunity with like a, a, a movie once a year, that's going to do it. And I would, they would presumably have the streaming rights to like this much bigger affair if that's more like once every three to four years or something like that. But I just wonder what the difference content wise would be, because I, I think like uh, who are they who are they reserving the next big Star Trek movie for the 2023 one? Like we have no idea if it's going to involve the Kelvin crew or if somebody just wants to move on. We've gotten like remarkably few details on what any of the uh, scripts that had been in development 
would have entailed, despite the fact that a lot of these scripts have been shelved. So that's why I, I continue to be very confused about what comes next and, and what corner of the galaxy will be exploring in theaters versus what's very much possible uh, just for streaming. Yeah, and I feel the same way where it's almost tough to talk about these projects that have circled around. We knew about, you know, the Chris Hemsworth uh, film, um, the Tarantino one we got it seems little nuggets in some ways, although we still don't have a very good grasp on what the actual story of that film would have been or could be. Um, but those those were both like dealing with the Kelvinverse crew, so we did get that. Yeah. So yeah, that's the other true. the other ones like it sounded as if the uh, Noah. Oh, why am I blanking on his name? Um, Noah Hawley. Well, Noah yeah. Hawley movie. It seemed as if that was not going to involve the kelvin first crew is that what you Correct. kind of picked up on it yes yeah seemed like it was a new crew situation and, and so they've got like a couple other you know plates spinning here i don't think they've decided necessarily what star trek script is going to move forward into production i think they've just marked a date and they're kind of like look paramount literally has a new ceo as of last week uh, who knows where that puts them in, in terms of deciding which movie to go with theatrically versus how much they want to invest in Star Trek as a, as a streaming content play uh, only, you know? So so I'm very confused about what to expect for it. But yeah, with, with a new CEO, who knows? Maybe everything just get, gets thrown out the window yet again at Paramount. Uh, that date that's marked for a Star Trek movie, I don't know. Maybe they just give up on that. Maybe they just do all Star Trek all streaming all the time. Yeah, that's entirely possible as well. Um, I also just wonder, from the point of view of a studio, okay? Like, say I'm going to have Star Trek streaming movies. We already have multiple Star Trek shows on streaming. How do we pitch these movies in a way they're bringing in new people to the streaming world who aren't already there for Discovery, Picard, etc.? Like, how are we... Yeah. How are we creating a Star Trek movie that the average person who's not watching any of those shows says, I got to sign up for Paramount Plus because I need to watch that Star Trek movie? I think that's a Tarantino script. You know, it's yeah. something like that. But I don't know what it, what it says in Tarantino's contract, but is he able to dictate that that must go into theaters? Um there's also mm, he yeah. kept insisting like, well, if this movie gets made, I'm directing, and I've always been very skeptical. Very, very skeptical of that claim. But um, but I think that would be kind of an example of that, you know, like um, that's how you draw somebody in or like there's just a lot of those auteur directors. What if uh, Denis Villeneuve said, um, I want to do a Star Trek film that takes place entirely on the holodeck or <laughs> I, like, I don't know, like people would be intrigued by whatever that is just because they're intrigued by the filmmaker. I don't know how Villeneuve would feel about making a movie for streaming. My guess is that wouldn't necessarily be his first choice. Tarantino, I don't think so. Yeah. I think if he's approached and they say, we want you to make this movie for our streaming network, it's a hard no. And, and that goes for any auteur, like big name auteur, like Christopher Nolan. He's not going to do uh, a Star Trek uh, streaming movie. So it's like, I, I that's a huge dilemma. Like, I don't know what to do uh, with regards to how do you draw new people in? Um, with, with the, well, I was going to say theatrical properties, but essentially like uh, movie properties for audiences that aren't already there for the Star Trek product. Like I, and I don't know if they're having uh, 
a productive conversation about that uh, at Paramount right now because it seems very confusing. I feel like the, boy, I feel like the only way that they could have, and I have a small imagination, people, so there's people far smarter than me behind the scenes, hopefully, but I feel like the only way they could have done it where they made a movie that the average person really perked up in a sea of Star Trek content they're already ignoring would be a Jean-Luc Picard movie. But now we have the Picard series, so they kind of can't do that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, had that been The Return of Jean-Luc Picard was a movie only available on streaming, I think that would have worked in their favor. But too late. Uh, You're totally right, but I think I've figured it out. I think I've cracked the code. Um, Mm. Don the Rock Johnson revives his character from Sunkatsi on Star Trek Voyager. (laughs) Did you say Don the Rock? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wait. Sorry, Dwayne. (laughs) Don's his brother. <laughs> well, yeah, he just has the rolled up sleeves, uh, you know, on his blazers the, the entire time. Or Don the Rock is uh, Dwayne Johnson's stunt double. <laughs> what was that um, movie that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt directed um, uh, like 10 years ago? Yeah, Don John. Don John. Yeah, that's who I was thinking of. Uh, no, get the Rock to come back or something like that. It has to be kind of maybe a, a big character piece. But who is like a... a like a, a draw like you can always count on yeah like for wide on white audiences I, I think the biggest is will smith um uh-huh. after that um dwayne johnson you know you're you're right like dwayne johnson is one yeah you know um and then it kind of it kind of thins out after that right dicaprio if he were willing to do it he's doing a movie for streaming the netflix film the adam mckay film so yeah. He's not against a streaming film, but also DiCaprio signs on for like 17 movies at a time and does one, if if any. Um, so I would never expect him to show up in a Star Trek film. But that's, it's a pretty small number of actors. You know, Tom Cruise is another one. Um, there, it's a very small pool, though, of actors who would draw people in just being in it. Um, yeah. And, and none of them are going to sign up to do a streaming Star Trek movie. Like, I'm sorry. Like, that's just it. The only do you think Dwayne Johnson would for the right price? Oh, he'll do anything for the right price. Yes. Yeah, because he's doing a streaming movie called Red Notice coming up, so he's not against doing movies directly for streaming. Um, I could see this, but then why would why would Paramount put this on streaming then? If he's such a good theatrical True. draw, then Paramount wouldn't put it on streaming first. They would have it in the theaters first, to then throw it on to stream after like. 45 days maybe you know so this is why this is like i think like paramount is kind of setting itself up to fail uh i like i hate to say it i i don't think star trek has much of a future or at least a viable future when it comes to the cinema i just i think um creatively and probably you know monetarily it, it rests in streaming television series yeah well star trek has never been <laughs> I hesitate to say a sure thing at the box office because the movies have done consistently well enough. You know, they've been profitable. Some have been extremely profitable. But it's not like a guaranteed home run. Um, You know, that's why they always cut the budgets on a lot of the classic Star Trek movies was, okay, relatively low cost, decent returns. That's not the world we live in anymore. So you're going to be gambling a lot of money on movies and theaters that doesn't work. So at a certain point, it just becomes... Is there a point to making streaming Star Trek films versus just having your weekly Star Trek content that the fans are signing up for already? 
I, I often wonder, and I hesitate to say this as a Star Trek fan who likes seeing new Star Trek content, if Paramount should also be looking at other things beyond Star Trek. Oh, yeah. But it's kind of like they've got Transformers, they've got Indiana Jones, and they've got Star Trek. Like, not much beyond yeah. that. So, in just in terms of um, kind of like ongoing um, intellectual property. And they've got Mission Impossible... It, it, it look we've got two more movies out of that and then I, I just wondered like do they do like a mission impossible streaming series you know just with dealing with the imf nothing to do with tom cruise or anything like that like that seems kind of like a, a no-brainer right there imf you know would be a really good idea to bring back to an actual show like having the whole team concept and doing a mission impossible show lord knows it was successful enough in the 60s and I think the only thing that would matter is just the movies have raised the bar so much on what Mission Impossible is, and two, countless generations of of um, you know film fans now, it's going to be Mission Impossible is defined entirely by those movies. So the show would have to deliver an experience that they are going to find enjoyable based on having watched those films. Then maybe kind of go go in the opposite direction, and where like you you can it doesn't have to be like all out spectacle, but make make it tense you know in like what what if the impossible mission was you have to get into this vault that's or you have to sneak into an office that's impossible you know like that sort of stuff where it's small in scale you can raise the stakes and then you're just invested in cool characters that everyone kind of wants to hang out with you know i, I think that'll attract audiences and you know i like i don't think it's as complicated as you know all, all these executives are making it out to be just based on the budgets that they're dumping into a lot of these properties if you can write it really well audiences will enjoy it because you know i think of the bourne series like people really loved those jason bourne films um not so much the jeremy renner entry but the jason bourne films and then they made treadstone a show that the world has forgotten so if you can write a really good Mission Impossible show, people totally watch it. The same goes for if they wanted to do, uh, not young Indiana Jones, they did that, but do a series of Indiana Jones, you know, adventures based in his 20s or 30s or something like tie them around the movie era. That could work as well. It just, it has to be good. It can't look like taking the TV series or a lot of these kind of knockoff um, attempts where they go, well, you like the movie, so just watch the show, even though it's not that good. Is there actually a take in the TV series? There was actually. It lasted, um, I believe, two short seasons, like two uh, ten or eleven episode seasons. Yeah, it yeah, was a prequel. That that's a <laughs> that's kind of stretching it a little bit, you know, like in in terms of trying to like uh, use the the branding of a, a popular property and, and and turn it into something successful. Like, you know, I I just I think they've got an uphill battle, and I can't imagine like this corporate shakeup is necessarily going to result in more star trek series only because they have so many coming down the pike anyways and and so uh, if they want here here's my pitch maybe it means more star trek series but not necessarily in the hands of alex kurtzman and um i think he has a bit of a mixed record so far i think you and i uh have always given him the benefit of the doubt uh we'd like to continue to do so but i i would not say that um it's been a, a huge success like we've had uh you know episodes he, uh throughout the the first couple seasons of discovery and uh, picard that we've liked uh we were enjoying like lower decks quite a bit uh you know we're hopeful about prodigy and, and, and strange new worlds but i i just wonder if like some other person who has kind of a deep passion and has like a really cool idea for a, a new 
take on the franchise, maybe they could just come in and do like a one-off, you know, like miniseries or something like that. And doesn't necessarily offend Kurtzman that uh, that person's involved. Yeah, I'd love to see that Nicholas Meyer con miniseries that he had yeah. um, put together. Like that could be really interesting. To me, um, if I'm Paramount as well, and we, you know, you and I have made many a snarky comment about the Section 31 show, right? But from the point of view of like Paramount, I would be looking at that show going like, why? Like, this is not drawing a single new viewer yeah. to Paramount Plus at all. You're going to get hopefully the same numbers as Discovery, but possibly and probably a little lower. So, like, why? Well, and I'll just play devil's advocate, and I agree with you. Like, the question should be why. And I think what they want to start doing, though, and it's been alluded to before, though, is they want to have an episode of Star Trek on every week of the year. So, essentially, you're never giving up your subscription. So... Um, which is a completely different play than what we've been talking about. Like, how do you draw new audiences towards a streaming service? Like, what we're ta- what I guess I just mentioned there is about retention. What I think Paramount needs to be thinking about is is drawing in new audiences to the Star Trek franchise. And as as much as I'm really looking forward to a Pike series, I don't know if that's going to draw in a lot of newbies necessarily. And, and so that's what what I'm kind of wondering, like. You look at something like uh, the new version of Battlestar Galactica, like it took like, uh, you know, a few seasons for kind of the critical um, accolades to kind of catch up to audiences who were then able to binge it, um, you know, back in the 2000s, catch up. And then that's when the show got, you know, really kind of big and became as popular as it is. And I, I think they need to just do something where it's more kind of prestige than, but but not that it takes itself as seriously as, say, Discovery or Picard has taken itself very, very seriously at times. I just think it's going to be really hard to differentiate these new live-action Star Trek shows for audiences who aren't already signing up for Paramount Plus to watch Discovery and Picard and what have you. Uh, it's going to feel like just kind of a blur of Star Trek content out there that they maybe aren't that interested in uh, in because Mandalorian season three is on or the book of Fett. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to have what, like five Star Trek series available, five new Star Trek series available by like early next year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also like if I'm paramount, it's cynical for me to ever say this, but I would just bet on people's laziness for not unsubscribing after a Star Trek season ends, because let's be honest, look at you and I, Tyler, how many series are we just paying for where it's like, Eh, it's six bucks a month. I'll just leave it. Yeah, I will admit this though. Um, so my Apple TV subscription la- lapsed. I canceled it. Uh, cause my head, I thought it was like eleven ninety nine a month or something like that. And then I was just like browsing through, and then I don't know if they're giving me a deal or something. Anyways, like it was five ninety nine, and so I was like, you know what, five five ninety nine. I'll I'll resubscribe. There's gonna be enough like uh, Apple TV Plus movies that uh like exclusive movies that i'll have access to there's a couple tv shows that i i don't mind watching might as well do it for the price of you know um two eggs of chips or something like that like that's why it does, like you're right and like if it's so little that's not gonna bug me whereas I, i'm looking at that bill for my uh netflix which i i have kind of the 4k version of netflix and like every month it's like uh with taxes it's about 23 bucks that's more like the thing that i'm gonna notice more yeah, and for me as well, in Canada, we have Crave, and there's the standard Crave, which has Star Trek on it and what have you, but then if you pay the extra $10, you get 
films, um, you know, like Warner Brothers movies, it seems predominantly that are showing up on Crave because we don't have HBO Max or the, here. Uh, the HBO offerings as well. Yeah, yeah, HBO as well, yeah. And that's an extra 10 bucks. So that's what I look a little stronger at as well is like, well, now I'm paying $20 for this service. But you and I both subscribe, God knows why, to Paramount Plus, which in Canada, folks, is kind of like subscribing to Tubi for $6 a month. At a certain point, you question why. Tyler and I are avid Survivor watchers. So we're like, okay, well, we can rewatch seasons. But other than that, there is zero reason to ever have Paramount Plus in Canada. Yes, I, I agree. Like the only reason I have it, as you said, is just the convenience of being able to access any season of Survivor that I want. That That's it. We should call it Survivor Plus. Like that's what Paramount should be known to us because their library stinks. Like it's just kind of like there's a couple of uh, movies here or there, uh, but that's only very recent. You know, it's just like they don't have a great brand here in Canada, which is a very small market. It's about the same size of, say, California. Like I get it, but I don't know. It just like... What's very clear, though, and, and what this ouster from uh, uh, the other week kind of proved is it's a complete disaster over at Paramount right now. Like, they just don't have much of a plan, much of a sense of direction, and there's, like, identity issues about what they want to be moving forward. Yeah, so if they can clean that up, um, find a way to give us cool Star Trek movies that draw people in, and also, please, give us Canadian something. I'll be happy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tyler, dare I ask, what are we doing next week? Yeah, we are in the home stretch of Star Trek Lower Decks. I, I, I blanked on <laughs> the series that we've been reviewing. <laughs> uh, that's not meant That's what um that's what the casual viewers are doing too when it comes to Star Trek content. Yeah, I, I will say this: uh, we should have a special guest, uh, you know, joining us uh, next week as well. So uh, tune in for that. Cool. Okay, you can of course find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V is in Virginity Smith. I, I knew you had to go with that one. I, I knew it. I had um, to. I had yeah. to. Yeah. You can find me at Reporton. That's R. R is in Royal Copulation. O R T O N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Yo, Rock, man, I sold like 17 million records. It man. doesn't matter how many records you sold. I, 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 yo, check it out. You want to go get some diamond rings? Man? It doesn't matter if The Rock wants to go get diamond rings or not. Man, listen, listen. I just got two new Grammys, man. You it doesn't I mean? matter about your Grammys. Transfer complete.